Back home, your planet. <laughs> you brought us a long way around, Doctor. <laughs> Are we down by the docks? Hello! <laughs> Pretty deserted. Probably Sunday. Jan Kenny. I wonder which area we've landed. What was that, Doctor? Mm, oh, I, uh, I'm just wondering about the time factor, my boy. Oh, a year or two either way doesn't make much difference to us, you know. Welcome to Who Worth Watching, where we're going through this 50-year-old show from the beginning to determine what's still worth watching for a modern audience. I'm your host, a man who welcomes our new Dalek overlords and can't wait to be robotized. My co-host is Guy, a man who likes to test his bomb designs by having other people try them out first. Hello, Guy. Little run. So have you dumped any bodies in the Thames lately? Not lately. If you do, just you should know you might get fined. <laughs> <laughs> So this story was supposed to be the blockbuster start, you know, the return of the Daleks to Doctor Who's second season, but they just couldn't make it work on schedule. So we got Planet of Giants first, and whatever you think of that story, it wasn't the big wow that they were hoping for. Mm -hmm. But I'm going to say right up front, I think it was worth the wait. For me, uh, you know, getting my cards out there, this is the first Doctor Who story that truly rocks. It's the one that really got me into watching classic Doctor Who. So will Guy agree? <laughs> we shall see. Mm -hmm. uh, there's an amazing amount of location filming, famously for this story, with Daleks all over London. Lots of special effects, including some pretty cheesy 1950s-style flying saucers. Now, on the DVD, at least, they provide an option to watch it with modern effects. I, don't, I didn't notice that in BritBox, so but it might be there. But Guy, what, what's your take? I mean, when given the choice between watching what they did at the time or watching updated effects, what, what do you prefer? Oh, I'd like to see it the way it was aired as much as possible. Yeah, yeah, I'm with you on that one. And it's one of the reasons I really get mad at George Lucas sometimes because he <laughs> messed up our ability to watch the originals as they were. Yeah. And Star Wars is going to come up more in this discussion. It, it, I've seen this story many times, and... It wasn't until this watch-through that I realized, oh my God, you know, uh, a decade before they were working on Star Wars, they actually did a lot of the Star Wars stuff in this story. <laughs> uh, okay, anything you want to say before we get into this? Or? No, no, I don't think so. Okay, so now it is time for the return of the Daleks, starting with episode one, World's End. This first sequence is, I'm going to say, one of the most compelling in all of Doctor Who. We're under a bridge, and before anything else happens, we just focus on this mysterious sign in the background that says it is forbidden to dump bodies into the water. And I consider that sign to be a brilliant opening to the show. It tells so much story in that one statement, and it's really eerie. Mm -hmm. Yeah, London isn't really the type of town that you think of bodies being dumped in the water. <laughs> on a regular basis, anyway. And just, yeah, th that there would be a need for someone to put up that sign. <laughs> that tells you a lot. <laughs> and then to increase the creepiness, at least to some degree, <laughs> a zombie-seeming guy with this weird apparatus on his head stumbles toward the water, rips off part of his helmet, goes into the water and drowns himself. <laughs> so this is, I think we can say this is a dark opening to this story. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. The TARDIS then appears silently. I think they still haven't worked out, you know, the whole sound thing with the TARDIS appearing oh, all the time. Yeah. Mm -hmm. 
<laughs> but a moment too late to save that guy. Inside the TARDIS, the Doctor is frustrated. He doesn't quite know what's going on. He can't quite tell where they are. But the readings show they've landed in a London-like place. So maybe this time it's successful, you know, getting Barmer and back to London. Mm. And, you know, he has. <laughs> yeah. As usual, you know, there's just some little caveats. <laughs> so they exit the TARDIS and see the river, which is the Thames, and buildings across the Thames. And Ian and Barbara are excited because they've made it back to London. Surely the show is over now. <laughs> and we could play the drinking game for we've landed in London. Is it the right year? <laughs> I take and, it that's <laughs> something that will happen in other uh, other Doctor Who stories. Yeah, you know, well. we've seen it like when they when they landed in France, remember, and they thought they were in London. Yeah. And, you know, <laughs> we, we've been through this circle. The funny thing is we reverse the usual where usually the doctor is certain that he's gotten them to 1960s London and, and Ian and Barbara are questioning him. In this case, they're like, oh, we're here. And the doctor is the one saying, I don't know, maybe this isn't the right year. <laughs> and Ian says, well, a year or two in one direction or the other doesn't matter. So I hope he means that. <laughs> and the doctor points out that there's a lot of neglect. You know, the grass here has grown really tall. People haven't been taking care of it. Seems a little odd. Ian and Barbara dismiss his concerns. <laughs> and uh, Susan then climbs up a ladder to see what's going on. And being Susan, she then falls and twists her ankle, you know, which is going to yeah. play into yeah. a bunch of the rest of this. I think it was Barbara in the last episode. And it's <laughs> Susan's turn. And now, because we need to make sure that they can't just use the TARDIS to get out of this story, the bridge collapses and encases the TARDIS in debris that they can't get through. And the doctor blames Susan for it. So somehow her falling off some ladder <laughs> caused the bridge to collapse. Uh, and they, they have to say the uh, impenetrable debris doesn't look all that impenetrable, really. It's like... <laughs> It's like a little section of fencing hanging over the front of the TARDIS. It's like you could <laughs> get a person or two to just push it out of the way. But uh, what do I know? Yeah, the doctor's a scientist. He knows <laughs> what they can do. <laughs> and now the doctor points out that they've been around for about 20 minutes. They haven't heard or seen anyone, which would be odd for London in the 1960s. He thinks they're in a different time. The Doctor and Ian decide to go to a nearby warehouse to see if they can find an acetylene torch so they can cut through the stuff that's uh, blocking the TARDIS. <laughs> and Susan can't go because of her injury. <laughs> this just cracks me up. Uh, she's disabled. She says she can't go. The Doctor leans over and says, what you need is a jolly good smack bottom. <laughs> <laughs> I haven't heard that phrase before, but I like it. <laughs> well, he's just saying what's on everybody's mind. <laughs> So as the Doctor and Ian explore that building, there's a stranger watching them that they don't see. And I love this shot. Ian looks out the window and he sees what he calls the Battersea Power Station. So I looked this up because mm. I recognized it. Uh, yeah. But there, there are two towers destroyed on it. But I was like, I know that. So I looked it up and I was right. This is from the Pink Floyd album Animals, you know, the cover of that. And I think they did a concert there, which is where they took the picture of that. What happened to me?
and I didn't care But you We would zigzag away Through the bottom of pain Occasionally glancing up through the rain Wondering which of the brothers to blame And watching For pigs on the wing Didn't they have like a great big balloon shaped like a pig? Yep, yep. And uh, and now <laughs> this power station has been converted into into luxury villas. <laughs> so. Okay, because in the, you can visit it in Watch Dogs Legion, which is like the dystopian near future version of London, and uh, it looks to me uh, like it's been converted into a shopping mall type thing combined with a high security installation. So. It's, but anyway, you know, it's there and watch. So for those uh, drinking along with us, you have your second drink of the episode. There's our video game reference. <laughs> <laughs> the doctor finds a calendar in the warehouse, and it turns out it's 2164. So again, I hope Ian was serious when he said it was okay one year <laughs> or the other. <laughs> now, what year was this episode made, do you know? Uh, at year, 1964. So, yeah. Okay, so it was exactly 200 years. Yeah. <laughs> Okay. I didn't think of that. Good point. Meanwhile, back under the bridge, Barbara sees the zombie body floating in the water. And suddenly Susan has disappeared. And some guy jumps down out of nowhere and says, Tyler has Susan. And he tells Barbara to follow him. So <laughs> things are happening really quickly here. Mm-hmm. Meanwhile, back in the warehouse, the doctor knocks over a box. And a, a zombie guy f- falls out of the box dead, you know, with the head apparatus and everything. The doctor checks out the head apparatus and says the helmet has an extra ear that picks up radio waves. And Ian determines that the zombie guy was carrying a whip thingy (laughs) and he was stabbed in the back. So a whole lot of stuff's happened to this guy here. And they then follow a noise and Ian goes through a door and it turns out there's no floor on the other side. And he falls and, you know, grabs onto a a bar and almost falls to his death. Mm Mm-hmm. Meanwhile, Barbara is running to a drumming theme, and we're going to see this. And actually, I, well, I want to hear what you think. I think it's very effective. When we see these outside scenes of them running or having intense things, they do, there's no sound. There's just this percussion soundtrack, and I think it's really effective and in, you know, kind of thrilling. Yeah, I uh, I noticed it more in the third episode where they have a wheelchair involved, mm. and uh, it struck me as good, but it was also kind of comical. <laughs> <laughs> uh, we might have a difference there. We'll see. Yeah. I <laughs> I love this story. So. <laughs> <laughs> so Barbara is running around outside following this guy, ducking behind cover, and this is the beginning of what we're going to see through much of the story of, like, very unusually for Doctor Who so far, they're outside, they have location shooting, you know, this is action stuff, they're 
escaping bad guys and following people around. It's really, uh, it's really different, you know, and, and, mm-hmm. and, uh, I like how they pull it off. Meanwhile, back at the warehouse, the doctor and Ian watch a very 1950s flying saucer <laughs> fly by. <laughs> and they then return to the bridge, but of course, Barbara and Susan are gone. And Barbara and Susan get to some location in a building with their escorts. And there's a large picture of an elephant and we're going to see this a lot through these stories. There's this big sign that says vetoed across it, and we don't really know what that means. And there's maybe a little bit of explanation later, but it's kind of intriguing. Yeah. I think in, I think in episode three, they have something to say about it. Uh, yeah. And uh, one of the guys they're with presses a hidden spot on the elephant picture, and an entrance opens, and a guy, we'll find out he's named David, jumps out, and he immediately turns to Barbara and asks if she can cook. <laughs> Yeah, thinking, okay. Yeah. Ah, oh, boy. Okay, so <laughs> one of the guys says he had trouble with one of the robo-men. So the first time we've heard that phrase, the robo-dude was waiting for them, so they're going to have to change the storehouse. We don't really know what this is all about. Then a guy in a wheelchair shows up, and <laughs> David points to Barbara and says, she can cook. <laughs> <laughs> so he's really excited about this cooking thing. Yeah. I love this. This may be my favorite moment in all of Doctor Who. <laughs> David then turns to Susan and says, and what do you do? <laughs> she says, I eat. <laughs> <laughs> that did strike me as a, as a funny or a fun line uh, when, I, when I first saw it. <laughs> it's a good one. <laughs> Maybe it's even a little bit of a commentary on him, you know, immediately assuming the woman is the, the cook. <laughs> <laughs> So David goes off to look for the doctor and Ian. Back at the bridge, Ian points out the forbidden to dump body sign to the doctor. (laughs) And the doctor is surprisingly dim here. He doesn't get the point. He thinks it's stupid to put a sign there. Who would see the sign underneath a bridge? (laughs) And Ian points out, well, you know, it's kind of the perfect place because if you're going to dump a body, this is exactly where you would go to do it. And then Ian says, bring out your dead. And he does that without reference, which I think is cool. So it's not like they're saying, hey, kids, you know, here's here's what this is about. But, of course, being a Monty Python fan, I'm very familiar with bring out your dead. Bring out your dead. Bring out your dead. Here's one. Ninepence. I'm not dead. What? Nothing. Here's your ninepence. I'm not dead. Yeah. He says he's not dead. Yes, he is. I'm not dead. He isn't? Well, he will be soon. He's very ill. I'm getting better. No, you're not. You'll be stone dead in a moment. Oh, I can't take him like that. It's against regulations. I don't want to go on the car. Oh, don't be such a baby. I can't take him. I feel fine. Well, do us a favour. I can't. Well, can you hang around a couple of minutes? He won't be long. No, I've got to go to Robinson's. They've lost nine today. Well, when's your next run? Thursday. You think I'll go for a walk? You're not fooling anyone, you know. Look. Isn't there something you can do? I feel happy. I feel happy. Ah, thanks very much. See you Thursday. Right. Oh, yeah. Although I think this would have been made well before Monty Python and the Holy Grail, so I'm I'm wondering if there's some specific cultural works that refer to that phrase before this one. Or if it was just more a generally known phrase from histories of the, the plague. I'm guessing the latter. I'm guessing it was generally known. But I agree. I mean, that's, you know, obviously I wouldn't know about it if it weren't for Monty Python. Yeah. 
Yeah, I think they're both just referencing the same history. Monty Python did it a little more more humorously. <laughs> <laughs> and suddenly, the Doctor and Ian are surrounded by Robomen slash zombies, which is not that threatening because they're all kind of standing there. I mean, they're holding whips, but they don't move and they talk very slowly. So you could yeah, just sort they're... of walk away. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they're not vigorous. Yeah, in fact, <laughs> instead of just walking away down the shore, Ian says they should head for the water when he tells the doctor to do so, which I'm like, what? well, I guess they're going to swim or something. And so he tells the doctor to go for the water and they turn around and run for the water. But a Dalek emerges out of the water. It's been underneath the water and it comes up out of the water toward them. And this is considered probably the most famous Doctor Who cliffhanger ever. Hmm. And I'm going to say, I appreciate it, but actually the execution is not great. Like, they should have put some suspenseful music or something on this, but they just have this Dalek sort of slowly coming out of the water, and it's not that effective compared to its fame. I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> it's kind of sinister, though, that it's coming up out of the water. Like yeah. it was, uh, you know, just, you could be standing right there at the riverbank, and all of a sudden, you got a Dalek. Yeah. And there actually was, you know, a Dalek performer inside there who was trying to get it out of the water. And he couldn't, uh, not surprisingly, he couldn't actually get the Dalek out of the water. So they had to like take a cable (laughs) and pull him Mm. along. But they did try to have him just, you know, because they're on like little bicycle inside there. And he couldn't actually get out. Yeah. Yeah. It'd be hard to get traction in all that mud, probably. And that's the end of our episode. The Daleks have appeared. Mm-hmm. One of the criticisms, I will say, of this is uh, this first episode is people felt that for what clearly is a Dalek story, because it's in the title, that it was very Dalek light. Uh, and that's one of their problems when they do something like put the name of the enemy in the title, because I think if they had not called it the Dalek Invasion of Earth, maybe if they would just called it the Invasion of Earth, then... Instead of people complaining there weren't enough Daleks, people would have been surprised and delighted when the Daleks showed up. <laughs> yeah, yeah, if they advertised it ahead of time. I mean, I think I can see on the one hand, if you let people know Daleks are in it, then that's mm-hmm. going to re- hopefully rekindle that enthusiasm that mm-hmm. made the show popular in the previous season. But then on the other hand, uh, they are giving something away by doing <laughs> it. So it's, it's kind of a trade-off, I guess. I don't know. <laughs> Third call. So on to the second episode, appropriately enough, called The Daleks. <laughs> yeah. Well, uh, so you got this Dalek coming up out of the river, and he goes right past the doctor and Ian. He ignores them, and he talks to the Robomen, uh, and they also talk like Daleks, with the monotone voices. The Dalek says that the humans are to be taken to Landing Area 1. Ian is pretty alarmed about all this, the appearance of the Dalek and the landing area one. (laughs) But the doctor here seems confident. He even seems cocky. Uh, (laughs) The Dalek says, we are the masters of the earth. And the doctor (laughs) says, not for long. (laughs) And the doctor starts talking to Ian, just clearly within earshot of the Dalek and and the doctor proposes that they should outwit the Daleks. Which, the, which I'm thinking in terms of a plan, like, duh, I don't know. <laughs> I know we should overcome the people who are you know, currently running. Or, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's a plan with potential, that's for sure. 
<laughs> uh, but the Dalek can hear him seeing this, which probably was deliberate on the doctor's part. It seems like he's just trying to get the Dalek riled up for some reason. <laughs> which I, I, it's not what I would call a smart plan, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah, I'm not sure of the logic behind it, but the Dalek says that it's heard similar words from many human leaders. He says, resistance is useless, and we have already conquered Earth. Well, the doctor has a Interesting reply to this. He says, <laughs> before you attempt to conquer the Earth, you will have to destroy all living matter. <laughs> yeah, and, and I'm not quite sure what the logic there is. <laughs> <laughs> oh, so, you know, here's a plant over here or something underwater, and, you know, until you've destroyed those, you're not going to conquer Earth. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, and you probably don't want to be given the Daleks' ideas either. That's true, too. <laughs> Well, the Dalek is fed up with the doctor's nonsense, so he just has the prisoners dragged away to that landing area. But having gotten rid of them, he wanders around the riverbank repeating, We are the masters of Earth, <laughs> in, a, in a kind of pouty, unsure voice. Like yeah, I've got to say, if you have to keep saying that, you might want to rethink some things. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So in the, uh, in the safe house of the humans... The humans are listening to the Daleks' broadcast. Uh, it's a broadcast inviting them to surrender and live. <laughs> and if they don't surrender, they will die. I'm all for surrendering and living. That's just me. <laughs> <laughs> well, Dortmund, who is the fellow in the wheelchair, he wants to talk with Tyler privately. But first, before retiring with Dortmund, he tells Barbara and Susan that David, who is still out in the field, he should be back soon with their friends. Susan's foot is sore, but it appears no bones are broken. And uh, the woman, who uh, I believe we, her name turns out to be Jenny, she <laughs> says, uh, why didn't you put a wet bandage on it? Which we had been their plan, but they got sidetracked. I think she's already showing, we're going to see this with Jenny, she's this very matter-of-fact person. <laughs> she yeah. has no time for wasting anything now. Yeah, she even explicitly says later on that she's unsentimental. She's also busy. <laughs> we'll get to that. Barbara, is uh, her first task is to get herself and Susan some food and to sign them both up for work detail. Meanwhile, Dortmund, uh, the wheelchair fellow, and Tyler discuss strategy. They may be able to gather 15 or 20 men. They're, uh, they're leading a little human rebellion here. Well, Dortmund, who is the scientist type, he reaches into a drawer and he pulls out a shiny ball. And it looks a little bit like the holy hand grenade of <laughs> Antioch. We have the holy hand grenade. Yes, of course. The holy hand grenade of Antioch. It is one of the sacred relics Brother Maynard carries with him. Brother Maynard, bring up the holy hand grenade. How does it work? I know not, my liege. Consult the Book of Armaments. Armaments, chapter 2, verses 9 to 21. And Saint Attila raised the hand grenade up on high, saying, O Lord, bless this thy hand grenade, that with it thou mayst blow thine enemies to tiny bits in thy mercy. So I guess that's the second time we've mentioned Monty Python and the Holy Grail. For my reference is it looks like a Christmas ornament, so I think it fits <laughs> both of those. 
Yeah, it is just a very, very shiny for a, for a bomb. But they don't usually think of them as being nice and shiny. So Tyler asks him if it's uh, if it's been tested, and Dorman says, "Tested? Don't be a fool. That doesn't need testing." <laughs> I'd say both of us are in the world of programming, right? So I think we know plenty of people who fall into this. <laughs> yeah, it always needs testing. <laughs> So finally, David returns from the field, and he joins Dortmund and Tyler. David has found a de- department store that still holds lots of usable stuff, so it's a good find. David had seen the doctor and Ian being led away, but he couldn't do anything with all the Daleks and Robomen and whatnot. His guess is that they were taken to the saucer at the heliport at Chelsea, which could be the same thing as Landing Area 1 that the Daleks mm-hmm. spoke of. At the heliport, the door to the saucer has about six Dalek guards outside it. It's uh, pretty pretty heavily guarded. Ian and the doctor are being led in as, as prisoners. Ian's puzzled. He says to the doctor, well, that we, we saw the Daleks destroyed. The doctor says that was a million years in the future. <laughs> this is the middle history of the Daleks. Mm-hmm. But I'm not sure. It's been a while <laughs> since I watched those original Daleks episodes, but it seems to me that when they got there, there had mm-hmm. fairly recently been a big war, maybe 500 years in the past or something, you know, not very long in the past. And it had been that war that created the Daleks. Mm-hmm. So I'm... I think they may be doing a little uh, retroactive continuity in there. Oh, yeah. I mean, basically, you know, at that time, the Daleks were a one-story monster. And now, of course, they've realized that that's their key to success. So they're now redoing the history. (laughs) You know, they try to do some explanation in here of why things are different and how the Daleks can be rolling around like they are now, even though a million years in the future, they couldn't actually go off of an electric track (laughs) and all of this. So I I think you just have to say, okay, yes, we didn't know the Daleks were going to be this popular. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, that is the, uh, that's the doily in description. (laughs) (laughs) The thing is, and I don't know, maybe they get to it in the later episodes of this sub-series, whatever, story arc, whatever you call it. But I thought they kind of left an opening at the end of the first Daleks story where they, uh, the Daleks said, uh, oh, we don't need your help looking at your stupid TARDIS. We can, we can now that we know the principle but it works on, we can uh, may just make our own. Uh, so if any of those Daleks had survived, then maybe with the ideas the doctor had given them, <laughs> they could make their own TARDIS and then, you know, come a million well, years see, back. See, this is why you should have been the story editor, <laughs> because <laughs> that makes about a thousand times more sense <laughs> than what they actually said. So, <laughs> All right, well, no, no need to dwell on it further. <laughs> <laughs> more prisoners are brought in, and the doctor notices the uh, there are discs on the Daleks' backs that hadn't been on the ones they met earlier. And this is where, as you mentioned, they theorized that these discs are here to let the Daleks move freely instead of just on metal. Yeah. I don't know what that means at all, but okay, we'll go with it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they're gathering static electricity from the air or something. I don't know. <laughs> 
These Daleks, the doctor points out, they're an invasion force, so they have to adapt to the planet that's being invaded. Which, <laughs> all right, fine. <laughs> one of the prisoners, it turns out from the Daleks' conversation, uh, one of them killed two of the helmet head guys, the robo-men, and the Dalek tells him he'll be punished. But then a different prisoner tries to make a break for it, and the Daleks kill him <laughs> in the same way they killed people in the first time we met him last season, by turning him into photonegatives. <laughs> so he's dead, and the other prisoners are sent into the saucer. Back at the safe house, David tells Susan that Barbara should be kept in the dark about their plans until they know whether the rescue uh, is successful. Jenny and David, they have a minor argument over the two helmets that have been captured. And this is where she points out that she's she's busy, she has a lot to do, and she's also unsentimental. And I'm not sure how that relates to the helmets, like why <laughs> one would get sentimental over them, but, but she brings it up anyway. I will mention here and maybe a bit in the future, Susan, she has this rifle or machine gun, probably more like a machine gun, that she's holding, and she's literally just putting her chin on it and rubbing back and forth. And I'm like, you know what? I, I think that's not what you learn in a gun safety class. You don't put the gun <laughs> Yeah. Oh, well, at least I guess she had, didn't have her finger on the trigger, so that was good. <laughs> Barbara asks about these helmets, and Susan and Jenny and David, uh, kind of all together, take turns explaining uh, what's going on. The human slaves, as we know, are they're called robo-men. But what we didn't know is that after a while of being robo-men, they start to go insane. And then they bash their heads against a wall, or maybe they throw themselves into the river, or throw themselves off a building, or... You know, they do themselves in some way. And then Barbara says something that's, it, it struck me funny just because it seems kind of understated or, you know, <laughs> just maybe a very, very classically British way of putting it. She says, oh, Daleks, everything they touch turns into a horrible sort of nightmare. <laughs> and then Jenny, uh, while she's telling her part of the story, uh, she reveals that her brother got converted to a robo-man last year. And she suggests that the heliport is where the Daleks do their conversion operations. And for somebody who had a brother go through one of those conversion operations, <laughs> she sounds somewhat unsentimental, as she said she was. Yeah. Unsentimental about all this. Um, you know, but of course, that could be emotional uh, you know, repression or yeah. coping mechanism of some kind. But... But she's very matter-of-fact about it is in, in how she tells it. So back in the saucer, Ian thinks that it's escape-proof, but the doctor says, only on the surface. <laughs> nice little callback here. The saucer has Dalek-shaped doorways, that <laughs> like in the episodes where we first met the Daleks. Uh, they're, they're a little bit different shaped, but they're basically the same design. So it's kind of neat. And the Daleks are watching on the, on the security cam as the uh, prisoners are hustled into their cell. They think the doctor is more intelligent than a normal human, <laughs> and they say they're going to give him that test. And I'll say, this is a trope throughout all of Doctor Who throughout the decades, where 
you know, he hasn't really said anything particularly intelligent, but as soon as people hear him like, oh, this guy's special, he really understands something, right? Yeah. <laughs> well, he was, uh, he was at least cockier than everybody else, yeah. so that might have gotten their, uh, their <laughs> That's <true>. attention. <laughs> uh, the third prisoner uh, with them, his name is Jack Craddock, and he's, he's very pessimistic about everything. Well, later on, we'll find out that he, he had reason to be pessimistic. <laughs> but uh, for now, the doctor has a much brighter outlook. Craddock explains what went on. He says, uh, you know, when the doctor asks about the Daleks, he says something like, what, have you been up in a moon station for years? <laughs> and the doctor says, quite so. <laughs> <laughs> Craddock explains that the Earth was bombarded by meteorites 10 years ago. And then a plague ravaged the world, that it was Dalek or Dalek germ bombs. He says whole continents of people were wiped out. And then he has a kind of evocative phrase here. He says, they used to say the earth had a smell of death about it. He goes on to say the doctors came up with a new drug to deal with the plague, but it was too late. And back in the safe house, we see Susan ask why. David is telling pretty much the same story as Craddock is telling in the saucer. And also, something I think is really unusual here for Doctor Who is while they tell the story, we're seeing shots from the things that they're talking about. Usually, Doctor Who is very direct, right? <laughs> you just have a conversation about this or that. But the fact that we see a story unfolding as they talk about it, it's just a little unusual. And I thought it was interesting. Mm -hmm. Yeah. David explains the plague had split the wor world into tiny little communities. Individually, they were too small to defend themselves. So the robo-men were created, and they went around catching other humans, and many of those humans were sent off to mining areas. And then we go back to Craddock in the saucer. He's explaining that he thinks the Daleks are here because there's something under the ground. Uh, he says Bedfordshire is one big mining area. Here's something uh, that's kind of uh, interestingly oblivious of the doctor. He uh, He's not interested in this, and he changes <laughs> the subject. He says, suppose we forget all this blab about Bedfordshire. Have either of you seen this? Hmm? This completely changes the subject of what uh, it promises to be a rather large plot point. <laughs> but... Uh, uh, for now, the doctor's uh, interested in, in something else. Meanwhile, we cut from that. Uh, we don't get to see just yet what the doctor has seen. On the radio, the Daleks are making a last offer to the rebels <laughs> of London. They promise that if people cooperate, they will be fed and watered. <laughs> I always like being watered, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and at the end of their announcement, they actually even have an ad jingle. It's in... <laughs> Just one line. They they have two part harmony. They say the Daleks offer you life. Rebels of London, come out of your hiding places. The Daleks offer you life. <laughs> you know, it's not exactly a Mentos commercial, but it's uh, <laughs> it's along those lines. So back at the safe house, the rebels are listening to this broadcast. Dortmund shows off his new bomb to everyone, and they're all uh, all very pleased and delighted, probably just because it's so shiny. <laughs> and they're planning a frontal attack on the heliport for tonight. Dortmund says, we have the superior weapon now. 
the untested superior weapon. So we'll see how that goes. Uh, the plan is to use the buildings surrounding the heliport as cover. Uh, there's a, The buildings are close enough that they can get right up to the heliport through and around the buildings. Barbara has an idea, which is, since they have two of these Roboman helmets, why not use them to imitate the Roboman? Do a little subterfuge. They'll uh, bring some fake prisoners in, uh, be led by the Roboman. And they'll be right up next to the Daleks. So the, everybody likes the idea, and they're going to attack in one hour. Mm-hmm. So back in the cell in the saucer, the doctor sees the Craddock as a magnifying glass. He says, I just picked it up. So it was just, <laughs> just conveniently lying around the cell. And there actually is a reason why, mm-hmm. but we'll get to that. Ian has spotted a big plexiglass box. The just transparent plastic box, maybe about 10 inches high. And it's got some interesting stuff in it. There's a sliding rail that goes from one end of it to the other, and there's a metal bar that slides on the rail. There are also seven dowels, like clear rods, almost like test tubes of various lengths coming down from the ceiling of the box. I'm not going to go into too much detail. It's a complicated little box it's good with a sliding metal uh, what bar this all it. reminds you because we heard earlier that the daleks were impressed by the doctor's intelligence and they wanted to give him a test and all of this testing stuff we're seeing here i don't know if you've ever seen it i can send you a link but there's this amazing video on youtube of this raven being put through like a 10-step test in order to get to the food at the mm-hmm. end and he actually solves all 10 steps. <laughs> and, ba- hmm. and first of all, I'm like, I don't think I could have solved <laughs> all those steps. <laughs> but second, this is exactly what it's like, right? Like, so they put them in this cell to see if they can get out and given them this set of 10 steps to get through. <laughs> it's just like that. <laughs> yeah. And that is why when the doctor uh, happens to see a bar nearby, another metal bar, and says to Ian, let me have that bar up there. That's also conveniently placed. Both that and the magnifying glass <laughs> are there for the sake of this little test. That we we actually haven't found out formally that this is the test, but we know that the Daleks had mentioned one earlier. So the doctor is playing around with the metal bar that he got from Ian, and it seems to affect the metal bar inside the box. They're they're magnetized. Now at this point. I would think that he could use that metal bar to just drag the other metal bar along the rail and get it out of the box. But that wouldn't eat eat up enough time. So (laughs) instead, the doctor has to note that there's a little light on the ceiling, and then he can use this magnifying glass to focus light into the clear tubes. Honestly, I couldn't figure out what was going on here. (laughs) I had no idea. Yeah. Yeah, it's not one of Doctor Who's prouder <laughs> moments, I think. Uh, yeah, it's it's just kind of messed up. <laughs> but anyway, just as uh, Craddock is exulting that his pessimism was justified, turns out that it wasn't justified, and they get the metal bar to come out of the box. The, the Doctor is uh, rather pleased with himself, and... Um, yeah, I don't know. There's there's no <laughs> point in spending a lot of time on this scene. It was uh it was really just filler. <laughs> <laughs> 
So the doctor coaches Ian and Craddock on how to use the magnets to get the door open. And th this is a little bit fun because for just a moment, Ian really plays up resisting the magnetic force. You know, he's, yeah, so he's holding the big metal bar and his hand's shaking. What I liked in this part, there's a point where Ian says, you, once they get the bars out of that little box or whatever, then Ian says, you know, doctor, sometimes you astound me. <laughs> the doctor... And, you know, one of these most classic doctor forms says, only sometimes, dear boy. <laughs> and I also noticed yeah. here, you know, we mentioned when we covered Planet of the Giants, that was actually, even though that was the first one of the season, it was actually recorded in the previous season. And I said the doctors seemed kind of tired. In this story, having had their vacation and everything, I think uh, Hartnell is really on top of it. And, mm -hmm. you know, he's, you know, he's really a delight. And when he delivers lines like, only sometimes, dear boy, there's a real delight in what he's saying. And I always appreciate it when I feel like, yeah, Hartnell was really there. You know, he wasn't oh, feeling yeah. bad. He was, you know. <laughs> yeah. No, he is, uh, he, he is fun in these, uh, in, the, in these episodes. So they've got the door to the cell open. But the Daleks and the Robo-Men are waiting right outside. <laughs> the Daleks say, you have passed the escape test. Take him. You will be robotized. <laughs> yeah, now I have a problem with the Daleks here. Like, if you just found a superior intellect, the first thing you're going to do is robotize him? <laughs> Wouldn't you actually <laughs> want to make use of that intellect before you destroy it? <laughs> <laughs> well, maybe they just need smart Robo-Men. Yeah. Uh, not everybody can <laughs> stumble around London with a helmet on. Yeah. So, while the doctor is being taken to be robotized, David, Barbara, and Susan, uh, they've come with the rest of the attack force, and they're very near the saucer entrance uh, watching what's going on. In the saucer, a Dalek instructs the Roboman to take off the doctor's coat and anesthetize him. Which is actually not a step you would really expect the Daleks to bother with <laughs> anesthetizing <laughs> people. But it's nice hey. of them, though. Hey. The rebels, their Robomen imposters show up with the, the helmets on but not doing anything. And they've got fake prisoners with them who are more rebels. But the Dalek, he asks where the prisoners were captured. And the Robo, the fake Robomen say, Sector 4. <laughs> but no patrol has been ordered in Sector 4, so uh, the Daleks is starting to catch on, and this is the Rebels' cue to throw grenades. And the grenades seem to do absolutely nothing. I mean, they do. you can hear them going off for about the next minute, and they make noises. <laughs> to me, it sounds like someone walking through piles of metal garbage. That's, that was the nearest I could come up with to it, but... You hear these little grenade noises uh, going off for the next minute or so, but you don't see any evidence that the grenades have actually done anything at all. I will say they tried their best. You know, they so there were the rebels who were coming in, but there's also Barbara and David and company who are off to the side, so they're the ones who are throwing the grenades. So they really try to make this kind of an epic fight. And <laughs> It's not, you know, it's like mm -hmm. two different shots of two different people, but they throw in some smoke and they're throwing the grenades. And, you know, I appreciate they were trying really hard to make this, you know, a big fight. <laughs> oh, yeah. And the Daleks kill several of the rebels by turning them into mm. photo negatives. Yeah. So there's a, there's a lot of stuff going on here and the rebels are definitely getting a hard time. 
then we see that some of the rebels made it into the saucer. Then they're going to blow it up, but first they want to release the prisoners who are in there. But they're on the other side of the wall from them, like the interior of the saucer is, is divided into sections, and uh, so there's a Dalek on one side of the wall that doesn't see all the rebels doing stuff in the main area. And the Dalek orders one of the robo-men to commence the operation on the doctor. And the doctor's lying down on this little little operation bed, and there's a weird machine hanging from the ceiling above his head. It's big cylinder, and there's like a big plug with wires hanging out of it, and then the plug pumps up and down, and the wires kind of stretch and compress as it does that, and it, it looks real impressive until you think about what it could possibly be doing, and it just <laughs> makes no sense at all after that. But it's neat looking anyway, and sinister looking a little bit also, which is meant to be. And that's our cliffhanger. Mm-hmm. Okay, episode three, Day of Reckoning. And the doctor is on that slab, and over the speakers, Adalak orders everyone to report back immediately as they are under attack. But a black-clad Dalek, so kind of, they don't call this out, but it appears that this Dalek that is black has a higher status than the mm. typical Daleks. I think in the subtitles uh, on Bridbox, I think it <laughs> calls him Supreme Dalek or something <laughs> like that. So yeah. one of the Robomen is trying to follow the orders that came over the loudspeaker, but the black-clad Dalek stops him and overrides the order, telling him to commence the operation on the doctor. And that Dalek leaves, and then one of our fake Robomen, Craddock, attacks the real Robomen, and while they're fighting, Tyler stabs the Robomen with no mercy <laughs> and no blood. You know, he just stabs him and puts the knife back, no blood. Yeah. And the Daleks now order all Robomen to destroy the invaders. Meanwhile, the rebels are running around releasing prisoners in the saucer and destroying equipment. And outside, there's confusion as David tells Jenny to take Barbara and Susan back to the rebel recluse. And Barbara and Susan refuse and run into the melee. And meanwhile, the rebels are throwing useless bombs at <laughs> the Daleks, <laughs> who are mostly confused at why they're being pelted by Christmas ornaments. <laughs> In the middle of this, a woozy doctor is escorted down the ramp by a rebel. And first of all, on this ramp, we see this ramp a lot. It goes up and down, and we see it all through these episodes. And <laughs> it is a flimsy piece of plywood. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It, uh, I noticed a couple times it's not really alien saucer quality. <laughs> I know. They could have painted it to look like metal or something, but they just... <laughs> and even in 1960s television, I think you would have seen that it was plywood. <laughs> uh, so it's really weird to me why they did that. <laughs> So here's the production thing about the doctor being escorted down that ramp. During rehearsals, while he was being taken down the ramp, he fell and hurt himself. And he had to be taken out for several days. And hmm. they will see they try to work around it, but it does have some impact on the production that Hartnell was not actually available. Uh. And as the rebels flee this conflict... We hear the Daleks giving contradictory orders, which I think is great. 
So we hear someone say, take them as prisoners. And then we hear another Dalek say, no, kill them. <laughs> so, uh, it's it's always good to see that the bad guys, you know, have weird things going on. <laughs> Meanwhile, Ian had run back into the spaceship and hidden in a cubbyhole in the floor. And this is where I'm going to say huge Star Wars callbacks as we go forward. Because in the next couple episodes... He's going to spend a lot of time <laughs> under the floor, exactly the way they did in Star Wars. Yep. <laughs> yeah, when they uh, when they get into the onto the Death Star, yeah, they, they get boarded. <laughs> yep. Going back to the rebels and their hideout. Earlier, we saw Dortmund in the wheelchair contemplating a mobile magnetic chess set. <laughs> we don't know, was he wasting time or stimulating his intelligence? My opinion was that the chess set was just kind of like a a cheap shorthand for, oh, this is a real smart guy. <laughs> <laughs> that yeah. was just sort of the uh, what show, don't tell thing. You know, he's got a little yeah. chess set. He must be the smart guy. <laughs> <laughs> Even though he probably should be thinking about whether his bomb works or not. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, a little, little testing is good for things like that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but now he seems to be in shock, having heard what's happened, and he's just staring ahead in his wheelchair. And Barbara is laying on a table. She's hurt. We hear crying. And at first, I assumed, of course, Susan must be crying, but <laughs> later it turns out she's not here. So presumably it's Jenny, even though Jenny is the very practical, non-crying type could be somebody else entirely too I guess. yeah but there aren't too many people left <laughs> most of them yeah. have been killed and then tyler comes in staggering and he tells dortman that his bombs were useless <laughs> and dortman wants to know how many were killed tyler says well basically everybody <laughs> and barbara asks about the doctor and ian and tyler says well there was an oldish man <laughs> that we almost got out <laughs> And now Tyler says, and, I, and we will discover very reasonably, that they've all got to leave London. But Dortmund says, no, we're safe here. Our, our safe house here is perfectly good. And Tyler points out, no, we just attacked the Daleks on your advice. And they're now going to search out and destroy every inch of everything. <laughs> and Dortmund said, no, I, I'm going to stay here and perfect my bomb. <laughs> <laughs> Tyler refuses to stay. Barbara offers to go along with him, but he refuses her offer. And Dortmund now points out that those who are staying can go to the other place, which it turns out hmm. is the Civic Transport Museum, where he can work on his bomb and the women can hide. But in order to get there, they're going to have to go over one of the bridges and across London. Then we're back in the Dalek ship, and the lead black-clad Dalek informs the others that Supreme Command has given orders for London to be destroyed by firebombs. Mm. I'm going to say, especially for people watching this at the time, just a hint of World War II. <laughs> yeah, no couldn't. But the black-clad leader says he wants the saucer to take off and take him to the mine workings in central England. Also interesting because, you know, especially in the 60s and 70s, mine workers were a huge political issue and force in England. Mm -hmm. Ian is on board. He hears the <clears throat> Ian is on board. He hears the saucer lift off, 
He raises the floor segment above him and gets out, and he encounters a Roboman and realizes it's Craddock, who previously had been, you know, one of the rebels, but now has actually been robotized. And he mm-hmm. kindly offers to robotize Ian. <laughs> so Ian and another prisoner dispatch Craddock and then dump him out of disposal chute. And the way it works, presumably, since the spacecraft is in the air, they presumably just dumped him out to fall to the ground. <laughs> Back in London, David and Susan are sneaking through London alleyways at night, and they evade a Dalek, who we then hear killing another human. It's really pretty tragic. Yeah, that's really a little bit of a disturbing scene there. Yeah, I mean, uh, and then Susan having to sit through it all. And you think of Susan as, you know, being this goofy, innocent kind of kid. She's got to sit there and listen to this guy get murdered. So, yeah, yeah it's, it's a little dark. <laughs> yep. She then says to David she has the solution. She'll talk the doctor into letting David join the TARDIS crew. They can leave this place and not have to deal with this crap anymore. <laughs> and David is not impressed. He's, you know, it's like, look, bad things could happen in other places too. And then when pressed, he's like, this is my planet. I can't just run off and see what it's like on Venus. (laughs) And then we get a continuation of something we've seen in some other stories in the first season, where Susan says, I've never felt like there's any time or place I belong to. I've never had a real identity. And David says, there will come a time when you are forced to stop traveling and you'll arrive somewhere. And it looks to me like they're about to kiss. <laughs> but yeah, I, it, I thought the same thing. Yeah. But then there's a noise. And one of the other rebels, Baker, brings in the doctor, who is very out of it because he was drugged in the operation process. And Baker says he's going to head out for the Cornish coast since it's abandoned. And apparently even the Daleks aren't interested in that place. Now, I don't know you know, British geography. I don't know about the Cornish coast. It seems like a bit of a burn. Like nobody cares about the Cornish coast. <laughs> and, but unfortunately he makes it about five feet toward the coast before the Daleks find and kill him. <laughs> oh yeah. He just almost literally goes around the corner and there's a couple of Daleks there. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's too bad. <laughs> yep. So Barbara and Jenny are now pushing Dortmund's wheelchair over a bridge in London. And I love this stuff. So first of all, again, it's all silent except for this suspenseful percussive music. They're running like bats out of hell. They're trying to push this wheelchair. They're having to avoid Daleks who are on the prowl. So we get these different shots of Daleks in different areas of of London. We follow a Dalek past the Parliament building, which is just great. (laughs) They go through Trafalgar Square, which of course is key. And this all had to be shot very early in the morning before people showed up, and they also had the police hold people off. When I I saw this, I don't know I don't know what it was that tickled my funny bone exactly. (laughs) Maybe it kind of reminded me of like the uh, the Benny Hill sketches where they play (laughs) yakety sax. I don't know, but there's something uh, about you're it. Was... You're, you're getting really heretical now. <laughs> <laughs> like, I'm here as this kid saying, oh, wow, this is amazing. And you're like, oh, you know, Benny. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, okay. Well, well, it was just, I mean, I did enjoy the scenes. They struck me as having that kind of a 
kind of an undertone to the. <laughs> <laughs> okay, well, I think we can see where we both stand on this. <laughs> <laughs> so they do all this running and pushing him in the wheelchair, and suddenly they're in the museum. <laughs> and the weird thing is, like, there's absolutely no time transfer whatsoever. They're in the museum, and they're now calm, and everything's fine. It's like they've been there for a week or something. You know? <laughs> and there's vetoed stickers everywhere. Yeah. Talk about more about that in a bit. And Dortmund says that his bomb is now actually finished. Now, he doesn't indicate that he's actually tested it, <laughs> but he says it's actually <laughs> finished. And he explains to Barbara that the problem was the metal that the Daleks are made of, which he calls Dalekinium. And Barbara is saying, well, maybe the Daleks are here on Earth mining for Dalekinium. Maybe that's why they're here. And Dortmund explains that really can't make any sense. They already had Dalekinium, that's, so that's not the reason why they'd be here. They must have found something that they could only find deep in our planet. And then Jenny, the practical person, shows up. And... This is the one thing we hear about these vetoed signs. She says, those signs are a code indicating the people who were here have left for the coast. And that's fine. The only thing I don't understand is we saw the vetoed signs earlier in an active area that the rebels were at. So, it, it you know, at that time, it didn't mean that they'd left, but okay, whatever. Hmm, yeah. There weren't as many of them, though. Maybe that was just one particular <laughs> yeah. thing was vetoed. I don't know. So Dortmund now tells Barbara that he wishes the doctor were here. And she's like, well, you don't even know the doctor. He says, look, I know he's a man of science and I could have shown him my notes and we could have had a conversation. He then asks Barbara to give the doctor his notes. And she says, well, why don't you just do it yourself? He's a little bit cagey here, but he points out he's not mobile. And he asks Barbara to go out and get Jenny, who has gone away, and they'll start out on their trip. As soon as Barbara leaves, Dortmund leaves his notes on the table, grabs a box with his bomb, and sets out through another exit. And Barbara and Jenny get back, and they find him gone, and they realize that he's going to try the bomb out for himself. This time, <laughs> he's actually going to test yeah. it. And indeed, Dortmund confronts three Daleks, and he calls out to them, and he stands up as much as he can as a kind of cripple. And he throws the bomb at them as they kill him. Yeah, we get to see the photonegative effect on him again, so he's dead. Yeah, and we can't really see if the bomb made an effect. I mean, there was smoke. It, you yeah. know. Well, I saw I saw some of the robots moving around, or some of the Daleks moving around afterwards. So I don't know. They they could always come back later and say, "Oh, well, they were actually dead all along." But yeah, it's I hard to tell. It looked to me like it didn't do much. One of the Daleks comes into the hideout where Barbara and Jenny are. And this is a really funny little bit because the Dalek sees this headless mannequin and assumes that it's a human and confronts it and tries to order it around for a while. So that's pretty funny. Yeah, and when it recognizes it's a mannequin, it says, it says something odd. Like, I think it says subcultural. <laughs> uh, but whatever it is, it uh, just says just dim dismisses it with that and then goes about <laughs> his business. Yeah, it's a pretty big insult, subcultural. Okay. <laughs> so now we're back in the London outside where Susan is trying to help the doctor walk. And they sit down. And 
Susan tells the doctor that David is saying they should go north and join the resistance there. And the doctor is very dismissive. He says, I don't care what that young man says. I make the decisions here, my dear. And he wants to go back to the TARDIS. Susan disagrees, and the doctor says, Do you question my authority, child? You seem to place more reliance on that young man's word than mine, don't you? And I I should say here that this is... The way he delivers these lines is considerably more more patient and um, reasonable than he might have done at points during the last season. (laughs) Uh, He's he's not quite as uh, harsh about it now. Mm -hmm. And then David returns and tells him that the Daleks have patrols on every bridge. And there's a big switch here because David ask for the doctor's advice, which totally surprises the doctor. Mm -hmm. And now the doctor surprises Susan because he says, you know what? I think we should travel north and join up with the resistance. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Yeah, which was what she she was arguing for on David's behalf. Yeah, so clearly he's had some kind of real reappraisal here. Mm -hmm. Back in the spaceship, Ian and Brady are in their cubbyhole. Brady says his brother, who's a miner, thinks that the Daleks are after the Earth's magnetic core. So one of the things kind of interesting in this episode, and we'll see in the story, is everybody's speculating, like, what are the Daleks trying to get at, you know, with this mining? Mm -hmm. Meanwhile, the ship lands, and a large number of Daleks and Robomen and prisoners get off. Ian and Brady get out of their cubbyhole, and they exit through the disposal suit. (laughs) Which, to me, it seems like... Seems like taking kind of a chance, because you don't know if there's just like a big uh, grinder at the bottom of the disposal (laughs) suit. Yeah. And back in London, while the doctor, Susan, and Ian are hiding, Robomen come in near them and bring in a large suitcase bomb thingy, which is ticking. And then we close in on it, and it's the end of the episode. Yeah, we're meant to think it's a bomb. It's probably an alarm clock or something. (laughs) We shall see. (laughs) The doctor and David and Sarah are are hiding, and the Robomen bring in this firebomb thingy and put it down and leave. I hadn't been clear on what it was. Like, why, why are they just bringing this mysterious case here and setting it down, and then once they mentioned sometime in this episode that it's a firebomb, then I remembered, oh, the Daleks had ordered the firebombing of London. Now, right. I, I had pictured something more like V2 rockets coming right. down. Uh, <laughs> yeah. No, they're doing it the hard way. <laughs> yep. So then a man who is not William Hartnell shushes them <laughs> because, as we mentioned last week, I think, during rehearsals, William Hartnell had been injured when he was being taken down the ramp of the saucer. And so he was out for this episode, <laughs> as mm. won't be totally obvious after this. <laughs> and the doctor, Susan, and David discuss what to do about the bomb until the doctor suddenly passes out <laughs> so he can be gone for the episode, <laughs> or his, his uh, stand-in does. You can always tell when, when, whenever wigs get really big. <laughs> it's like that's when it's a... So David and Susan examine the bomb, and David eventually pours acid on it. And I guess the acid is from one of Dortmund's bombs. Yeah, they do mention later on that they were acid bombs. Yeah. Um, but this this is a, a nice little special effect, I thought. Mm-hmm. I mean, it really, it, it, look, it reminds me of 
everything ends up reminding me of alien some way or another. But, uh, <laughs> in this true. case, it's uh, you know the first time they encounter the acid blood and it's eating through the floor. It's a very right. similar effect to this. Yeah, it eats through, and it wouldn't surprise me if they did use some kind of acid with some material that would react to it, or or something that had a you know similar chemical effect. Yeah, I was thinking that they probably could have got something similar with just like a sheet of sugar packed together, because like mm. if you pour absinthe over a sugar cube, as I've had occasion to do now and then, <laughs> uh, you get a get a similar effect out of that. Uh, glad you're into doing science experiments. <laughs> <laughs> And uh, David says, we'll have to leave the old man here for a while since William Hartnell has been hurt, or something like that. <laughs> but he uh, he has a brilliant plan. We'll tell him to hide while we look for an escape. So, <laughs> And they won't have to worry. He can just hide under a bush or something. Yeah. We are then back to the museum, and Barbara and Jenny are pumping up the tires of a truck. And this, uh, I'm sure, just one of those British things. The, the signs on the truck say it's a side load, and I've... I haven't seen that. I'm assuming that's to say that the, you know, the doors along the side of the truck will swing out so that people know that that's how it's loaded or something. I, I would guess it's something like that. I've seen beer trucks that have uh, the panels on the sides, you know, instead of having to unload everything from the back. Mm -hmm. Jenny asks Barbara if she knows the route to Bedfordshire. And Barbara says, yes, I used to. <laughs> Jenny says, what does that mean? And Barbara says, it means I used to live, well... We're not sure how much damage the Daleks have done. <laughs> and Jenny says, you wait until you see what they've done to Bedfordshire. And we get kind of this close-up, tragic shot of Barbara. And I'll tell you, in these final episodes, Barbara and Jenny, but especially Barbara, really get to do a lot of stuff, unusual amount. And they really get to develop a relationship in a way that you don't typically see mm -hmm. in these stories. This is, talk about a classic split up. I mean, this is a story where through the entire story, you know, everybody's split up in twos or, or whatever all over the place. So in the mining area, Ian and Larry are there, and Ian's asking Larry, how are you going to find your brother here? And they watch Daleks bringing human slaves along a railroad track into a tunnel. And this is the first time that Doctor Who filmed in a quarry, which may not be meaningful to you, but <laughs> trust me, it won't be the last. I mean, eventually, uh, it becomes kind of known as the show filmed in quarries because <laughs> all the mainland <laughs> landscapes are done in quarries over time. Uh, handy. I guess they have a lot of them hanging around Britain. <laughs> and, you know, it's pretty effective. Uh, mm -hmm. I mean, in this case, they're not trying to be an alien landscape, but it's pretty effective watching all these humans, you know, go along the tracks and be carrying stuff along, and they do look like they're sort of enslaved. And mm hmm we get various shots of drilling and buckets on pulleys being used to bring out rock. Then they hear in the background a Dalek announcement about the next selections for people to be robotized. And Ian and Larry are about to go back into hiding when another normal human being shows up. This guy turns out to be named Wells. I, I think they don't even name him for, or they don't say his name for an episode or two, so I had to check mm -hmm. the credits. But before they can talk with this guy, a Roboman appears. And Wells tries to deceive the Roboman to save Ian and, and Larry, but the Roboman isn't having it, and he decides to take Ian and Larry off to be considered for robotization. First, though, he smacks Wells with a stick, <laughs> <laughs> knocks him down, and says in the future he should get orders from his masters. And Ian and Gary run over to help him since he's been knocked down, and the Roboman says he has to follow his orders. And this is a little odd. I, I don't know if you could tell what's going on here. Ian says, well, you should get new orders. And all of a sudden, the Roboman sort of freezes and we see the light in his ear going and i 
I mm. thought maybe he took Ian seriously and sort of, you know, was waiting for new orders or something. Yeah, I'm not I'm not sure what that is. It did seem like what Ian said had confused him for a moment somehow. So while he's confused, they run inside this earth the cab of this earth mover they've been standing next to. The Roboman comes in after them, but Ian is behind the door and knocks him out. And it turns out that Wells is here to meet a guy named Ashton, a black marketeer who smuggles in food. We switch back to London, and Jenny is upset about Dortmund having committed suicide to test his bombs. And she and, and Barbara kind of have an argument here. She tells Barbara that she has an overly romantic view of resistance. You can't throw away lives just to prove a principle. And there's a consistency here we've seen in the Reign of Terror etc that barbara tends to um have that romantic thing right she's mm-hmm. tends to be on the side of the actually was she on the side which which side was she on in the reign of terror well she she was she was even handed about it she yeah. was ian was very strongly in favor of the people who were looking out for them and then barbara said well the other guys have their point too right <laughs> So Barbara points out that Dortmund sacrifices why she and Jenny are still here. So there was a purpose. And they then drive the truck out into London. And meanwhile, David and Susan are in the sewers and they find a bullet casing. And Susan assumes there must be friends down here because the Daleks don't use bullets. And David points out that not all humans are allies of each other. And soon enough, Susan screams because she has to scream. And we see a human (laughs) hand pointing a pistol at them. Mm Mm-hmm. And we're back to Barbara and Jenny, and they're driving through the countryside, and they come across four Daleks on the road who start shooting at the truck, which seems to be pretty (laughs) (laughs) Dalek-resistant. And Barbara decides to drive right through them, and she smashes one of them, (laughs) and it's a pretty thrilling shot. Um, And, you know, it's this huge truck, and the steering wheel is about the size of her body. (laughs) It's nice to see Barbara get to be a badass. Yeah. And then I found this a little bit hard to follow, but uh, if you watch carefully, what's happening is there's some Daleks in an office somewhere, (laughs) a (laughs) Dalek-style office, probably in the saucer, discussing what the truck did. And so then apparently they have saucers kind of flying around, sort of like jets, and they redirect a saucer to take out the truck. And Barbara and Jenny hear the whine of the saucer just in time, realize what's happening, and jump out of the truck, (laughs) and the truck is then blown up. Mm -hmm. Or a little model of the truck, but I, I won't complain about that. <laughs> <laughs> Back with David and Susan, it turns out the person with the gun was Tyler. So it was a friend after all. And it turns out the shell casing they found was from Tyler shooting at an alligator. He <laughs> says the sewers are full of them. Susan's confused about alligators in London, which actually that ought to be a album title. <laughs> <laughs> Through the streets of Soho in the rain He was looking for the place called Lee Ho Fuchs Gonna get a big dish of beef chow man He says apparently they escaped from the zoos and do very well in the sewers Tyler goes on Actually, I don't know how well alligators would do in the cold i mean they're they're cold-blooded right but the, that means they need a warm place yeah, and they're, britain is they're, not warm <laughs> they're not native to britain that's for sure <laughs> yep tyler goes on ahead to take them back to the doctor susan complains to david that tyler is very abrupt 
and David explains that he doesn't want to get close to people as he's seen too much killing. And Susan says she hopes she never gets like that. And David says one day this will all be over and it can be a new start. And Susan says rebuilding a planet from the very beginning. It's a wonderful idea. And David points out that she could help. Mm -hmm. Could be foreshadowing. We'll see. Yeah. Back in the mines, uh, we watch a Robomun walk off and something is making a roaring noise in the background. And Ian and Larry show up, and Ian says he heard some kind of sliding noise, and they wait for a long time while the very obvious creature around the corner moves out of sight, so they can pretend that they don't see anything when they look around the corner. <laughs> they then go inside the Earth Mover and run into another one of those pistols held by a human hand. <laughs> it turns out it's Ashton, the black marketeer, holding the gun. And as we hear the monster whining outside, it kind of alternates between roaring you know, somewhat scarily and whining in a not very scary manner. Ian tells Ashton he wants to go to London, and Ashton asks if he can pay, and Ian is offended that he would even ask, you know, to pay for a human to get from one place to another And in these kind of times, and Ashton says, are you one of those Brotherhood of Man types? <laughs> so Ashton is that, you know, very classic black marketeer character we get in these things, you know, the, yeah. the wonderless. <laughs> yeah, he's kind of, uh, kind of like a Han Solo type character. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> he definitely shoots first. <laughs> Ian can't pay, so Ashton says he hopes Ian will be able to avoid the slither. It turns out that's what that monster outside is. <laughs> Wells shows up and pays Ashton for food, and Ashton suggests that they all sit right there and eat, and Wells tells Ashton the food is for other people, not for him, so he's sort of standing up to him. Yeah. Yeah, I think Ashton says that he he's, he has his own food. Yeah. <laughs> So it turns out the Slither is a pet of the Black Dalek commander, and he roams around the camp at night looking for people to eat. Well, I gotta ask you, and we'll see him a little more close up later, but this being your first shot of him, I mean, just how terrifying do you find the Slither? <laughs> I didn't find it super terrifying, but I was curious to get a better view of it, and I never really felt that I got a really good long <laughs> look at it. I think it was supposed to be a scary monster, and I, I don't know, I don't recall this for sure, but I'm going to take a guess that once production saw it, sort of like when in The Prisoner they initially saw Rover, I'm going to guess they were like, yeah, we got to use this as little as possible. Could <laughs> <laughs> be. Even people who really like this story, you know, the Slither is always counted as a black mark against it. <laughs> yeah, I, I got the impression that it, it might not look too bad if you could get a better look at what it actually was, because it looks just sort of like a shambling garbage heap most of the time. <laughs> yeah. But uh, it seems to me it's kind of gilding the lily. Like, you've already got this dystopian future Earth that's mm -hmm. occupied by Daleks. You don't need to throw a mutant monster in there, too. You know, you've got enough. Yeah, I think that's a good point, and, and they probably did feel this obligation to have to have a monster, and this will be even true in later Doctor Who, there's, you know, whole season that's kind of famous for just being one monster like this after another, and you're right, I mean, the most effective thing is, is this, you know, post-apocalyptic London. Yeah. So, uh, in the sewers, we're going to see another scary monster here in a moment, in the sewers, uh, Susan finds a tunnel, starts climbing down a ladder, he comes loose and she screams as an alligator comes toward her. Now, actually, it's clearly a cute little pet lizard that's about two inches long, <laughs> but, but, you know, scary enough. And then Tyler appears from a, from a hatch above and shoots the alligator, and he says he's found the doctor, and so they go up the ladder. And back at the mines, as they finish up eating, we see the slither again, <laughs> uh, scariest-looking creature since that two-inch lizard. <laughs> 
And it manages to get into the Earth Mover, and Ashton shoots at it, and it takes him out while the rest of them leave. So, unfortunately, our Han Solo's dead already. Yeah, that's too bad. He had potential. Yeah, the actor did (laughs) seem good. You know, it's always fun to that kind of character. They then rush out and find that they're trapped with cliffs all around, Ian and Larry. And they turn around, and the scarifying, shaking slither is there, and it's it's just sort of shaking these arm things back and forth. And they say it looks like a pile of garbage, and I, I don't have your faith that if you got a better look at it, that it would look better. I think that was them uh, obscuring it as much as they possibly could. And uh, with this terrifying threat, it's the end of the episode. <laughs> and now to the waking ally. The waking ally, not to be confused with the woke ally. <laughs> the, uh, Ian and Larry are here being menaced by the slither, and while they do seem to be trapped on the edge of a cliff, there is fortunately a great big bucket hanging near <laughs> them. It's not like the kind of bucket you dip into a well. It's a big bucket like a piece of heavy construction equipment would have hanging from it. They jump to it, yeah, so they're in the bucket. But they they noticed that the slither probably could try jumping also, and sure enough, it does. And the the slither's jump is kind of uh, unimpressive, the way that it's filmed. (laughs) But but it gets a grip on the bucket, and Ian beats it with a rock. He he just smacks it uh, several times. The slither is kind of an ignominious end. It just... Is this weak little whimper, and then it falls off the bucket. And, and I think uh, we hear it splash after a while or something. <laughs> yeah, it's a long oh, way down. I actually thought it looked better while he was beating it, because we were seeing these, like, tentacle things, which, you know, would have been a little more interesting <laughs> yeah. previously. In the saucer, the Supreme Dalek, a.k.a. the Black Dalek, uh, he orders there must be no delays. And an underling says the waste bucket in Shaft 9 <laughs> is being lowered now. And what a coincidence, it's the bucket with Ian and Larry in it. Very convenient for I gotta say, on a major construction project, these guys are real detail-oriented talking to the the Supreme Dalek about individual buckets that are being lowered. (laughs) Yeah. But I will will say, I'll I'll have a few things, complaints to make uh, as the story (laughs) proceeds, but uh, actually this isn't terribly unrealistic because we'll Mm -hmm. find out that this is the last project they have to do before their master evil plan goes into motion. So, mm-hmm. uh, so it does make kind of sense. Although the fact that they're lowering it just as Ian and Larry have opted into it, that's uh, awfully convenient. But <laughs> oh well. So meanwhile, the doctor and Susan and Tyler and David have all just finished climbing down a ladder into what looks like the sewers. They're talking about the robo men pursuing them. And sure enough, the robo-men come down the ladder. Tyler's gun jams when he tries to shoot the first robo-man, so he starts wrestling with him. And then Tyler also is in David's way while David is trying to shoot the second robo-man, so the shot misses because Tyler jostled David at the last moment. Now both of them are fighting robo-men mano a mano, and uh, Susan runs in to distract one of them, and a doctor beats the other one with his cane. <laughs> now, the second robo-man climbs back up the ladder while the first one is lying uh, curled up on the floor under the wrath of the doctor's cane. 
The second robo man's climbing up the ladder, and Tyler shoots it. So he finally got his gun working. And then he prepares to shoot the other one, but the doctor says, No, Tyler, no. I never take life. Only when my own is immediately threatened. <laughs> so a little doctrinal statement from the doctor here. <laughs> he goes on to say, Leave this creature to his own devices and salvation. <laughs> we see a flash of lightning, and we see the interior of a squalid cottage. Uh, there are two women in it. One's a fairly old lady, uh, white hair and all that. Uh, and one's, one's a little younger. What they immediately reminded me of, the way they're dressed and everything, are like hags or witches like in a you know shakespeare play or something oh, else yeah. you know, you're it, in the middle of the forest and you come across these women yeah i uh i, I especially thought that of the of the older woman she really is almost typecast to be like a witch from macbeth or something mm -hmm. you know she's uh yeah very witchy <laughs> she even has that old uh you know hello terry you know, <laughs> yeah, that, yeah. that witch voice <laughs> But she has a little more sinister aspect. Uh, she she uh, doesn't conceal her witchiness too well. But, mm -hmm. but uh, Barbara thinks the cottage is abandoned, so she leads Jenny into it. And, of course, it, it's like a one-room cottage, or at least the two women are sitting in the room nearest the entrance door. So there's uh, everybody's surprised by everybody else. And then when it, when they settle down, Barbara explains they're looking for shelter. Jenny, at this point, she just wants to move on, but the younger occupant of the cottage says the dogs will get you. Yeah, and that girl, she had a really interesting look. I thought just, you know, she doesn't get to do much acting in it, but but she had a really compelling face. There's no way to really describe it. Yeah, yeah. It's uh uh, and she does. She does have kind of an interesting just just the little bit of acting you see from her it makes you wonder if is she like. Is there something slightly off about her? Or, you know, she... I think that's true. And also, and even though, again, she has like two lines and, and just some facial expressions, you can tell that she's not as evil as the old woman, but she will do whatever the old woman tells her. She doesn't mm. have any moral qualms with doing something, even though she might not have initiated the idea. Yeah, sounds about right. So the older lady explains the Daleks don't bother them because they make clothes for the slave workers. In fact, the Daleks even bring them food, but they're still hungry most of the time. <laughs> and on hearing this, Barbara reaches into her pack and offers a can of food. The old lady says, thank you, very, very gravely, very <laughs> seriously. Uh, but then she <laughs> immediately starts rooting around in Barbara's pack, and it, it reminds me of uh, the scene... Uh, what would it be, the middle one? Empire Strikes Back, mm. where, uh, where Yoda just starts rummaging through all of uh, Luke Skywalker's luggage. <laughs> the old lady finds a second can. She takes out a gigantic knife and pokes a hole in the top of the can and sniffs it. Uh, then she smiles. Whatever's in the can is something that meets with her approval. Yeah, and I don't know if I saw this right, but when she first stabs toward the can with that knife that she's holding, she misses it. And the knife comes very close to her because she's holding the can to her chest. Then mm. she stabs the top of the can. And as near as I could tell, it was not a fake knife. It went through the top of the can. So <laughs> it, <laughs> if that is true, she looked like she came about a millimeter from slicing herself. <laughs> <laughs> well, some people just bleed for their art. Yeah. <laughs> After sniffing the can, she smiles and says Barbara and Jenny can stay the night. So Barbara and Jenny go ahead and prepare their bed. 
And while they're doing this, the cottagers are having a sinister whispered conversation. <laughs> the younger then leaves carrying a big bundle of clothes, and she says she has to deliver some clothes. Barbara and Jenny, they ask, in this weather, what about those dogs? <laughs> and uh, both very, very sensible, relevant questions. But uh, but the older lady says the younger one will just follow the patrols. Uh, so she'll be safe. Meanwhile, the bucket is lowering. And Larry estimates they've been traveling for 20 minutes. And I thought uh, they actually did a pretty effective job here, right? Because... They just have this bucket, and they have lights going by them in shadows, and mm -hmm. um, it actually is a pretty good effect of making it feel like they're descending, even though mm -hmm. they're probably just standing in place. <laughs> yeah, yeah, the uh, the moving shadows do, uh, they help sell it a lot. Yeah. Uh, so the buck bucket finally stops uh, about 12 feet above the floor, and both men jump to the ground, but Larry hits his kneecap, so he's hobbled. <laughs> And this no, may be a Doctor Who thing in general, but it is one of those Terry Nation, you know, the author of this and the author of the original Daleks, classic things, right? Where everybody's always getting hobbled in one way or the other. Remember, Ian got hobbled in the first one. Mm -hmm. Of course, Susan, Susan, Susan uh, hurt herself her right in the beginning of this story. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. People are very <laughs> fragile in Terry Nation stories. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Although they do heal up eventually, so that's good. <laughs> So Larry's hobbled, and uh, they're too visible here, so they look for a hiding place. They're, the bucket has led them to a little underground room that's pretty well lit. They need to get out of the light. In the cottage, meanwhile, the women are discussing London. Jenny says they've destroyed most of it, and I, I love the old woman's response. She <laughs> says, destroyed? Why, I never. <laughs> and the old woman goes on and uh, rambles about the time that she was visiting London. She tells about the things she saw. And she mentions, and I don't know if this is a reference, uh, just sort of a fun thing they threw in or what, but she mentions seeing the astronaut fair in the Chelsea heliport, mm. which is ironic because the Chelsea heliport is where the aliens landed their saucer. <laughs> So when she talks about this, this is the cue for the younger woman to return and come in through the front door, except... And I'll say, uh, for, you know, she... Mm -hmm. Actually, the old woman has been on her best behavior here, right? She's, oh, and asking about London and doing her little story. She seems very amiable. <laughs> Turns mm -hmm. out, you know, she's just trying to keep their defenses down. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, she's just stalling for time. Because when the woman, younger woman, returns, uh, she's followed by a Dalek. And it insists that Barbara and Jenny must follow it, so they do. There's not much else they can do. When they're gone, the younger woman laughs, and she lists the food that the Daleks gave her. They gave her bread and oranges and sugar. Right. For just a moment, right after the Daleks take them, the younger woman looks kind of guilty. And you kind of mm -hmm. think maybe she's going to have a reaction, you know, a bad reaction to what they've done. <laughs> and then mm -hmm. she just laughs and moves on. And that's where I'm like, I think she <laughs> is more human than the older woman. But you know what? Food. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So the older woman says, I knew they'd give us food if we told them. She looks out the window and says, oh, well, she'd have been captured anyway. Yeah, that was her bit of guilt. Now, I don't yeah. know which one, but one of the uh, unfortunate stories here is... A week or two after this, before the story had aired, one of them died in a car accident. Oh, wow. Yeah, so 
Yeah, pretty shocking. Especially since, I mean, you know, we spent a lot of time talking about these two extremely minor characters because I think the whole scenario and the women really stand out in the story, and I, I think it's pretty mm-hmm. well done. So, and and I could see either one of those actors I could see doing really good work. So it's really a shame to hear that, you know, that happened. Yeah. Oh yeah. Hmm. Well, in the mine, Larry doesn't think he's going to be able to walk. Larry and Ian they're hiding behind a large pile of baskets. And Ian is about to look around. He actually gets up and takes a few steps, but then a group of robo-men and slaves is approaching, so he hides again behind the pile of baskets. And each slave comes up to the pile and takes a basket from the pile. One of the slaves, who's Wells, who we met earlier, he sees them and says they're going to have to move uh, because the pile of baskets is shrinking. So Ian and Larry join the group as uh, as slaves or imitation slaves, and Ian helps Larry walk. He's really not able to move under his own strength. So Ian props him up, and a robo man tells Ian to halt. Larry says, "Phil, it's my brother." Mm-hmm. Just another happy coincidence. <laughs> But Phil doesn't seem to recognize Larry. Uh, apparently that comes with being a robo-man. Larry tries to provoke some memories in him. He you know, says, I'm your brother Larry. He mentions Phil's wife, Angela. Uh, but nothing seems to get through. Uh, Phil is just uh, very robotic, like a robo-man. And he unslings his machine pistol. At this point, Larry says, run, Ian, run. Sure enough, Phil shoots Larry, and the the sound effect they got for the machine pistol is just really lame. It sounds very, very little like a firearm. But, but it's still pretty brutal. Anyway. I mean, he's shooting his brother right in front of him multiple times, you know, with no... Um, oh, yeah, yeah. The scene itself is, is pretty brutal. It's just the sound effect doesn't really <laughs> carry in its weight. Uh, so Phil shoots Larry uh, repeatedly with the machine pistol, and... Larry chokes Phil while he's being shot. So they both end up lying on the floor, uh, dead or unconscious. And again, a very, very dark story. <laughs> yeah. And uh, and this sets off an alarm because uh, when the robo-men malfunction, there's usually some way for the Daleks to detect it. Uh, the alarm goes off and Dalek voices come on the loudspeaker saying, Riot in Shaft 9, close all exits. And so forth. In the woods, Susan has a campfire going. (laughs) And David sneaks up behind her with a big fresh fish and startles her with it by uh, basically just (laughs) holding it right up in her face. So they have a playful struggle. It ends with David lying on the ground, Susan kneeling beside him and both of them probably smelling like fish. <laughs> now, you left out one little part because she, before she's kneeling beside him, she is actually on top of him. Ah, yeah. This practically turns into softcore porn, right? Because she's on top of him. They're looking at each other. He even, you know, he strokes her and then starts to kiss her. So it's just like, holy cow. <laughs> we haven't seen this in Doctor Who before. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it is a nice, quiet, intimate moment for them. And he uh, he takes her, her hand and strokes it while they're talking. Uh, they talk a little bit about how the doctor is holding up well. At least he's back for this episode, so I guess <laughs> he is holding up well. 
David moves in for a kiss then, and he does get about a second's worth of a kiss before the doctor returns with Tyler. <laughs> and David says, I was just, uh, the doctor <laughs> says, quite, quite. <laughs> he doesn't seem to care what was going on. Susan's been cooking a rabbit in a pot on the fire, and the doctor says Susan's a very good cook. And there are two little interesting things <laughs> about this. First is, this is a little callback to that uh, episode where they were in the rebel safe house and Barbara's cooking was complimented, and Susan said, I eat. <laughs> so we find out here she doesn't just eat, that she actually can also cook. Then this also may be the doctor... Playing matchmaker, you know, because he says Susan's a very good cook. He doesn't go so far as to add, a most desirable trait in a wife. Hmm? <laughs> but uh, he, he might have been tempted to. He seems to be trying to marry her off. Right. Uh, so I wasn't sure if the script was aware enough to remember that they had the implication earlier that she didn't cook. Um, I think, though, what you just said might be the best interpretation is that it might even be that she doesn't cook. The doctor just wants to, you know, give her a little benefit here. <laughs> <laughs> just talking her up a bit. Sure, yeah. could we? <laughs> so having seen the Dalek base, the doctor's convinced it's a center of their operations. He says if there was something on the surface they wanted, they would have taken it and left. But they must need something inside the Earth. Something they can only extract if they know how to, as he puts it, control the flow of living energy. <laughs> I'm not entirely sure what that means. It's called yeah. the Force. <laughs> yeah, okay, yeah, it all makes sense now. <laughs> yeah, we have had a lot of Star Wars-like stuff in here, so. <laughs> oh, we'll get a doozy a little later. Yeah. <laughs> and David says, they dare to tamper with the forces of creation. And the doctor says, yes, they dare. And we have got to dare to stop them. <laughs> Back in the mine, Ian's hiding from a group of slaves and their robo-men leaders. Then he spots Barbara in the group. Barbara and Jenny are dumping baskets of rocks into one of those larger buckets. Wells is sent to take some empty baskets elsewhere, and he goes by Ian, who collars him. Wells tells Ian that he will tell Barbara that Ian's here, but he has to get rid of these baskets first, because that's orders from the Daleks. Barbara and Jenny are scheming as they're carrying rocks around, and Barbara has an idea having to do with Dortmund's notes on the manufacturing the bomb. She breaks off from the slave group, and she tells a Dalek about an upcoming uprising. <laughs> the Dalek thinks she's lying, but she shows him the supposed proof, Dortmund's notes. The Dalek reads it over. He, he describes it as details of the acid bomb used on the unprovoked attack <laughs> on the landing area. Yeah, I love that little bit because that's such a realistic little PR speaker. Right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that's the party line. Barbara wants to speak to someone in charge, not this underling Dalek. So the Dalek says she'll be taken to the black Dalek. That's the term he uses. But if she's lying, she'll be killed. Yeah, because part of what she's saying is she has to talk to someone with the authority to act immediately on her information. Right. That's that's her. That's what she's selling anyway. And uh, Wells returns to Ian. He's ready to take him to Barbara, but Ian says, it's too late. The Daleks just took her away. 
Now we see the Daleks' control room, and in here all that remains is to send a Fisher capsule down into the Earth. <laughs> and I love how they have like a whole flow chart about exactly where the capsule is going to go and at what point. <laughs> yeah, they've got a little side view map of the shaft going down. It's uh, yeah, they they put some effort into it. This is a bomb that will open the fissure and release the molten core of the earth. And the uh, the slaves that are down there now are just doing some final clearing up and cleaning up before uh, before the bomb arrives. The Daleks. They will control the flow of the released core to eliminate the gravitational and magnetic forces in the Earth's core. The Black Dalek says he's going to announce that Project Degravitate will be completed <laughs> in two hours. Now, somehow, from, from the mines, Ian has snuck into this control area. Uh, we, we didn't really get to see the odyssey of him coming out of the mines up here, but... Uh, Somehow he did. And there's a little cylinder he can hide in, so he does hide in it. And he's just in time to hear the Daleks reveal their big plan, <laughs> which is really, um, for me, uh, it's kind of a disappointment because it's <laughs> a little goofy, I think. But the plan is to replace the Earth's core with a power system that will allow the Daleks to pilot the planet anywhere. Yeah, I think that's a pretty cool plan. I don't know what you're from. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, it, it sounds like fun, but there are some practical hindrances I can think of. But <laughs> I don't know. It, it, seemed, it seems a little excessive. I mean, like, you had the Death Star in Star Wars, and you could barely swallow your disbelief for that. But that was the <laughs> size of a small moon, not the size of the But I hadn't thought Earth. about it. Yeah, they actually are sort of creating the Death Star. I mean, so that's even <laughs> one more... Star Wars uh, item here. <laughs> so, yeah, they're just going to put a spoiler and some racing stripes on the Earth and just tool it <laughs> around the cosmos, apparently. Yeah, and, I, and I don't think we ever get any better explanation of th this plot uh, in the you know, following episode. I think this is about all we find out about it. <laughs> so, I don't know. It, it didn't really <laughs> grab me as a mastermind <laughs> plan. But, oh, uh, what do I know? I, I don't have the... Uh, all the smarts of the Daleks. I guess. <laughs> anyway, the Black Dalek orders arm the device, or actually he says arm the device. <laughs> and it turns out the device is the cylinder Ian's <laughs> hiding in, of course. And now it's closed because they brought the other part of it in to seal it up in one big capsule. And so you'd think it's probably pretty dark in there, but next episode we'll see that maybe it isn't. We see a model of a Great vast cliff face. Yeah, it's obviously a model, but it's it's <laughs> still kind of neat. It's got a little platform sticking out of it. Then we see the cylinder sliding out of the rocks into position on the platform to be dropped down into the earth. And that's the end of this episode. Literal <laughs> cliffhanger this time. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> Actually, that's the second. The, the, the previous episode was a cliffhanger, too. That's true. <laughs> But next up is Flashpoint. As Guy said, uh, the Daleks have some pretty good lighting people. <laughs> so we're inside the capsule <laughs> with the end, but everything's very well lit. And he's surrounded by wires, so he just starts pulling wires out <laughs> until the capsule stops moving. And then there's some very unenthusiastic Robomen, which, you know, they're always unenthusiastic. <laughs> uh, they're in a rope line above, pulling the capsule back up by rope. 
And eventually they get the capsule up and Ian ends up hanging by that rope. And then the Daleks realize that he's there. And one of them starts exterminating the rope he's holding. <laughs> Instead of shooting Ian, he's shooting at the rope. Uh, yeah, for, you know. <laughs> some kind of acid, it seems yeah, like. Yeah, or something like that. Or just, you know, so we, and actually pretty good effect. We see, you know, just see the rope there and see it kind of disintegrating. Hmm. Then when the rope is disintegrated, an Ian doll slides down the capsule ramp <laughs> back where he was. <laughs> Does this scene end with him hitting the door at the bottom? Either this or, or the very next thing we see him doing that. Yeah, oh, he, okay. he kind of smacks into the door down there, but does, it doesn't seem to do any real harm to him to have yeah. dropped a few hundred feet. <laughs> Looks like it was a fairly gentle fall. <laughs> now, on the way to the Black Dalek, Barbara and Jenny make a plan for Barbara to distract the Daleks while Jenny does as much damage as she can to the main control panel. Because, you know, there's always a main control panel. They haven't been in the room yet, but... Barbara's been in a Dalek control center before, so she knows how this works. And uh, Barbara and Jenny are brought in, but just sort of left in a corner while the Daleks do some talking. And they determine that all the work has been completed, so naturally it's time to exterminate everyone. <laughs> Seems like with the Daleks, it's always exterminate time. <laughs> yeah. The Dalek beer, that's what we <laughs> <laughs> And uh, they are going to send a signal to all the Robomen to herd the humans to where they will be killed. And <laughs> for me, this is the other Star Wars connection. This is the original Order 66. <laughs> uh, <yeah>. <laughs> <laughs> where in Star Wars, all the uh, Jedi, or was it the No, all the clones. Yeah. In Star Wars, all the clones are, are ordered to kill the Jedi. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but first, conveniently enough, they have to test their oral control <laughs> over the Robomen. <laughs> Which lets Barbara and Jenny know where the Robomen control center is and the little speaker you can talk in to control them all. And Barbara comes up with an idea that they can give new orders to turn the Robomen on the Daleks. Mm. And then the Daleks turn their attention to Barbara, and the Supreme Commander wants Barbara to tell them about this revolt. And she starts, she pulls out the papers with the bomb information. She starts to tell them about the bomb, but they have no interest in that. <laughs> they want to know about the revolt. And now, and I, I love this scene, I really do, because she just comes up with this brilliant impromptu speech in which she mixes characters and events from history. Yeah, this is real cute. I like this. Yeah, so she's like, you know, the Indian Revolution will run parallel, and they stop her and say, we are the masters of India. What do you mean? <laughs> yeah, they, that's. I, I think she's referring to the Indian Mutiny at first, which was an actual thing in British-occupied India. Right. But she says, no, I mean the Red Indians. <laughs> not not too politically correct these days, but okay. And she says the Red Indian Revolution will run parallel with the Boston Tea Party and General Lee and the 5th Cavalry will come on one side and they're going to be joined on another side by Hannibal. And, and she's going on. She says, of course, you've been informed about the Boston Tea Party. And the Supreme Commander is upset because, in fact, nobody had informed him about the Boston Tea Party. <laughs> and... um then she runs over to the speaker and attempts to give her own Order 66, but the Daleks are too fast for her, and they realize she's been lying to them. <laughs> and so they pull her away, and in typical actor-Dalek interaction, she clearly has to hold the suction cup to her back <laughs> while she's moving. <laughs> I always love these plot things. Rather than just killing people, even though they're happy to kill them all the time, they decide to take neck braces and secure Barbara and Jenny to these magnetic neck brace things so that they will be killed when an explosion goes off. Well, you know, they could have just killed them, but instead they go through this. And we get one of these other funny situations because 
They have these neck braces, which are fine, but they actually were supposed to be magnetic and were supposed to stand there on their own. But whoever was responsible for getting the magnets, all they could find were little like dime store <laughs> magnets that didn't really work. So the actors have to hold their neck braces <laughs> to the wall the entire time. <laughs> So then uh, the doctor and Tyler reach the mine shaft slash crater with David and Susan. And the doctor sends David and Susan to the other side of the crater to use some bombs to sever something. I didn't quite get what he was talking about. Mm. And meanwhile, the doctor is with Tyler and they find their way to a Dalek doorway and the doctor manages to get it open. And Tyler tells him something about Doc, you're full of surprises. <laughs> and the doctor objects he prefers to be called Doctor. <laughs> Meanwhile, Ian, yeah, is slammed in to the bottom of that shaft he was going down, and he manages to open a portal there to one of the spots where humans are being herded. And then when the Robomen and such have left the room, he uses some logs and puts them through the portal. And at first I thought he was just blocking the portal open, but actually he's blocking the bomb shaft hmm. where the bomb is going to have to go down. The Daleks then send the bomb down the shaft and they don't realize it's been stopped by his logs. So they think they have about an hour for the bomb to reach the center of the earth and explode, and they have plenty of time to get in their saucers and get out of here and let all the humans die. Meanwhile, the Doctor and Tyler reach the control room, and, they f and, and Barbara and Jenny are alone there with their neck braces, and so they free them. And the Doctor turns on an external camera where he can see David and Susan. And as soon as he does, the Daleks realize that uh, this has been done and that the prisoners in the control room must have escaped and they say someone needs to go take care of that. And we get, we get again, we got this in the original Dalek story, but it's still pretty cool. We get this Dalek eye view, first of Tyler and then of the Doctor, and the Dalek is closing in on the Doctor. So we've got this circle on the screen that's sort of closing in on the Doctor's face and the Doctor is standing there looking very defiant. And on the video screen, we see David shoot the bombs that they had brought. And this apparently causes a heat spike that immediately disables the attacking Dalek. He complains about the heat. So there's so much heat that the Dalek, you know, starts smoking and shuts down. But the humans are fine. They're not even sweating or anything. <laughs> yeah, this this whole thing where the Daleks just heated up all of a sudden, I, or the, the single Dalek, I didn't really get it, what was going on there. You know, it was hard for me to follow. <laughs> um, you know, I, I saw that something had happened. I didn't realize it was bombs. Yeah, I actually had to rewind and realize that it was related to David shooting the bombs because these bombs are outside a long way away from where they are. Uh, I have no idea why that caused a heat spike, you mm. know, in the control room. Right? So just got to go with it. <laughs> Meanwhile, Barbara goes to the Roverman control speaker. <laughs> I love that. She didn't do this previously, but this time... In order to control the Roboman, she does an amusing Roboman imitation by waving her hand in front of her mouth. <laughs> She's talking. And then the doctor steals her thunder by leaning in and just telling them to turn on the Daleks. And now we do get one of those Terry Nation repeat things. You know, we saw this at the end of the first story, right? Now the humans and the Roboman are running around and they're turning on the Daleks and they're lifting them up and turning them over and you know, having this yeah. fight with them, which is all fine. It's just, yeah, that is the way the first story ended, too. Oh, yeah. But isn't that really the way that you want every Dalek story to end? I suppose it is. <laughs> it does turn out to be amazingly easy to just pick them up and turn them over. You'd think people should do that a little more often. 
So as the fight rages, the crew gets back together, you know, they find Ian. And then we see just dozens and dozens of people running from the mine shaft. It's this ominous music, but there's something about this music, and I realized what it is. It is silent film music. Hmm. Or the equivalent. It's like piano-based, you know, ominous music. I did, I, as a person who's a fan of silent film, it just amused me that I uh, saw that connection there. I didn't spot that. Huh. And uh, they get outside, and there's a huge explosion, a volcanic eruption, lots of impressive B-roll film of cliffs and buildings collapsing, and of you know lava. <laughs> and the doctor declares that none of the Daleks could have escaped, so they've been foiled again. <laughs> and then we're back at the TARDIS. The debris is being cleared. Mm, and... Yeah, it's it's probably worth explaining that supposedly the explosion went far up enough into the atmosphere that the Dalek saucers were all wiped out by mm-hmm. the uh, by the debris flying up into the sky, something like that. Yeah, I don't that's know. always the had a line about it, but, but the saucers <laughs> are taken care of too. At any rate, yeah. So back at the TARDIS, you know, people are clearing away the debris that was impossible to get around previously. (laughs) And uh, the doctor tells Tyler that the human's next task is rebuilding of the Earth. And while he's talking to Tyler, we hear the chimes of Big Ben in the background. Mm -hmm. And it actually is a little shocking as you realize you have, you know, this has been such a dreary post-apocalyptic setting. And you don't think about the fact that you haven't been hearing things like chimes of Big Ben. Mm -hmm. And the doctor says this is just the beginning. Mm -hmm. And then he sees Susan outside the TARDIS. She's sitting down, and her shoe has a hole worn in it. And he promises to fix it and takes it from her and kind of holds it to his chest. And Susan's confused. She says she has lots of other shoes. In fact, she should go into the TARDIS and clean up her cupboard as it's in a dreadful muddle. And the doctor, you know, says to her that since they left that school in the very first episode, she has been rather disorganized. And he hugs her, and he says she needs taking in hand. <laughs> mm-hmm. And he says then that he's going to go check on the ship. And Susan walks over to David, and Ian comes up, and Ian's a little oblivious in all this, to, everything that's going on. So he's just chatting with David and asks David what his plan is. And David says he wants to grow food because he wants to see things grow again. And Ian keeps asking him questions. <laughs> but... Barbara either realizes the doctor's plan or she at least realizes, probably more realistically, that David and Susan need some time alone. (laughs) So Mm. Barbara kind of, you know, grabs him by the shoulder (laughs) and pulls him away to the TARDIS so that David and Susan can have their their time. And Tyler then comes up and gives them his leave and as usual is rather abrupt. And then it's just Susan and David. And they have a pretty big conversation here. You know, David asks Susan to stay with him. And she says she can't, she doesn't belong to this time. David says he loves her, he wants her to marry him. She says, but her grandfather needs her. And David points out very fairly, he's offering her that one place and that one time that she wanted that would give her an identity. She's upset and she runs away, but because she's missing a shoe, she stumbles, which is a very (laughs) classic thing. (laughs) And then she returns to him and says she does love him. And inside the TARDIS are Barbara and Ian and the Doctor. And the Doctor closes and double locks the TARDIS doors. And then William Hartnell gives what I'm going to call the speech. This is like, you know, the most famous speech in all of Doctor Who, which all 
Doctor Who podcast covering this are required to end the podcast with the speech. So we will <laughs> do the same thing. Well, but let me ask you, what did you think about his final speech to Susan here? Uh, yeah, I mean, it was, it was, it was a kind, you know, grandfatherly speech, but I'm, I won't be happy to see Susan go, but, uh, yeah, it was, it was, it was a good speech. It was, uh, you know, kind of, uh, pushing the little bird out of the nest type mm. thing. Yeah. So. Yeah. And, uh, it ends with goodbye, my dear. And the TARDIS disappears and Susan, she kind of tries to touch the space that the TARDIS was in and she's sort of mm-hmm. shocked that it's gone. And David joins her and he says the doctor knew that she could never leave him. Leave the doctor. That's yes. why the doctor forcibly left her. Yeah. So. And she then, she's had this TARDIS key around her neck and she then drops the TARDIS key onto the ground and joins David. And we close in on the TARDIS key lying on the ground. And that's the end of this story. Mm-hmm. So I think, um, I mean, you know, so you're okay with it, but you know, still maybe you have kind of the heart of a slither. <laughs> uh, for me and many Doctor Who fans, this is a very emotional moment, you know, and a very mm-hmm. key moment in in the whole show. Oh yeah, I mean, it is emotional, but uh, it's emotional because you're losing a likable character. So I mean, yeah, it's I mean, it's emotional within the context of the story, yeah, but it's also we the viewers are getting deprived of something as well so that's right right you know it's like the uh what mel brooks says uh tragedy is when i cut my finger comedy <laughs> is when you fall into an open manhole and die <laughs> and that's that's kind of my my take on this you know yeah it's uh it's a hard emotional scene for the uh uh for the characters in the show but what about me what about me the viewer <laughs> right so I don't want I don't want to be Susanless, and I suspect that's what's coming up. Right. Let's talk about the story now. You know, I violated all of my <laughs> worth watching principles by saying right up front that I think it's you know, a great story. It's as I think I mentioned last week. Mm-hmm. It was watching this story that convinced me to rewatch, uh, or just actually, it, it was watching this story that convinced me to watch all of classic Doctor Who. Hmm. Um, and so, you know, with all of that, <laughs> what do you, what do you think of the whole story? What, what, how does it strike you? It was fun overall. I think, I think the sheer idiocy of the Daleks plan uh, <laughs> may have soured me on it a little bit, but uh, um, overall, yeah, there was a lot of neat stuff in it. But then again, I mean, yeah, it's. It was fun, but there were a lot of places where there were just remarkable coincidences to keep everything <laughs> moving. So between the coincidences and the Daleks' plan, I mean, uh, I'd say it's a fun story that's marred by some unfortunate things. <laughs> <laughs> I think the stuff that just stands out to me and, and makes me ignore most of those other things is we talked about the overall feel, I think, is amazing, especially for this show, which you know, a year before this could not have pulled off anything close to this. Oh, yeah. In terms of outdoor filming. Yeah, all the outdoor stuff and this really consistent post-apocalyptic feel. 
people and one of the things i appreciate and this is often not true in tv shows or movies right like people including our stars are very dirty and torn up the entire way through the story right it's Mm -hmm. not like one of those things where oh the star walks in and has perfect hair even though they've been you know (laughs) in the middle of the desert for a month or whatever and i love the stuff with the daleks you know in an in an empty london and trafalgar square and and, going across the bridges and all that (laughs) So for me, in a way, I have to admit, when I think about this story, I basically go from (laughs) Daleks roaming around an empty London to the ending speech about Susan. (laughs) (laughs) And a lot of the stuff in between, I just kind of forget about. (laughs) Fair enough. Fair enough. (laughs) So let's talk about some of the characters, unusual number of characters here, an unusual number of side characters who really get some quality time. So we have David. Um, what did you think of the the boyfriend here? <laughs> you know, he uh, he grew on me a little bit. I mean, I never was really crazy about him, but he was uh, he was he, he was a decent character. He seemed like a nice, upstanding guy who uh, probably would do a good job of uh, you know, taking care of Susan and so forth. And uh, and actually, I, I realized that at least his hairstyle and sideburns look a lot like my dad as a young man (laughs) so uh so he's got that going for him he'll probably grow up to be a good dad (laughs) he's one of the people on the um background materials and so this is what he looked like in his 70s he's actually still quite good looking could Ah. actually play doctor who (laughs) oh yeah (laughs) <laughs> I could see Susan being attracted to him even then, you know, especially no, maybe sure. looking a little bit like Hartnell there. <laughs> so, you know, I, I thought he was, he was fine in this. He didn't stand out to me too much acting wise. I liked Tyler a lot. I thought he came off as a very strong character, you know, that kind of not going to say much, you know, seen mm-hmm. too much kind of guy. Yeah, sort of a laconic, you know. <laughs> So I got I got this picture. Yeah, he uh, he does look like he'd make a good Doctor Who. Yep. <laughs> Did, didn't really end up looking a lot like my dad, though. <laughs> <laughs> then we have Jenny, and in her, first of all, I really like Jenny. You know, she is this kind of hard ass, and it's interesting because she, Barbara and her have a lot in common, but they also contrast. You know, she's a little less romantic, as we said, mm-hmm. than Barbara about things. The general idea was to bring her onto the TARDIS as the next companion to replace Susan. Oh. And they just didn't get around to deciding about it and doing the paperwork. So the director huh. asked her if she would do it, but he said he didn't, you know, he couldn't commit to it. And that's not what ended up happening. And we'll see next time where that, where that hmm. goes. Um, but uh, it would have been interesting because if, if she was another companion, they would have had to figure out how she and Barbara were going to get along, right? Because they're both strong women, and then you, so you mm-hmm. got to figure out what how's that going to work. Oh, sure. The actresses met on this show and then became essentially best friends. They lived across the street from each other. Their kids oh. went to the same school, uh, oh. et cetera. So, oh, returned. Now, regarding Susan leaving. How did that come about? Did she want to leave? Did somebody want her to leave? What was the <laughs> Well, they may have wanted her to leave. But yeah, she wanted to leave. She, she, you know, was not, this wasn't the character she'd been promised. Hmm. It wasn't the character they did in the pilot where she got to be more alien. And, you know, 
I mean, just as we can see, she just got tired of running around and screaming every week, and she wanted to do something else. So, yeah, yeah it was her choice. Well, that's a, I mean, that's a a bold choice when you're like on the one of the most popular TV programs in your country, and you decide you're going to leave it because you're not happy with the role. So, yeah, and and Hartnell was not happy at all. You know, both because he felt this whole thing is working right so he didn't want uh, you know people to leave and also this he wanted to stick with the people that he at this point knew and were, was familiar with but also right. from a mentor point of view he was like we're actors this is a regular paycheck <laughs> you know as an actor <laughs> you do not walk away from a regular paycheck you know <laughs> yeah. and i think she has acknowledged that at that point she was sort of too young to really understand that you know mm-hmm. This is, so I think, our third Terry Nation story, right? So we had the Daleks, and we had the Keys of Marinus, and we have this. There are similarities. He does, we've talked about, especially in the Keys of Marinus, how often he repeats himself. I feel like this had less repetition. You know, if I if I didn't know what to look for, I wouldn't spot some of the things he was copying from the original Dalek story. He, he does continue mm. his inability to name anything other than very literally. So, you know, the <laughs> the slithering monster is called the slither. <laughs> <laughs> any thoughts about story or any of that? Uh, no, it just, you know, we, we went through all the episodes of the the apocalypse and the, you know, rebels against the Daleks and... Uh, you know, the the Daleks need something out of the mine. <laughs> and it turns out that their big plan is just to turn the Earth into a spaceship and travel all <laughs> over the place. I mean, that doesn't even, they have spaceships, for Pete's sake. <laughs> That's just, that that part really disappoints me. And, of course, I'm, I'm not happy to lose Susan. But uh, aside from that, uh, yeah, I can't complain about much, I guess. Uh, you know obviously uh sounds like we have a different reaction i have a much more emotional you know and no doubt nostalgic reaction to this but it comes down to that question of you know as the person is coming to all this new you know is this story worth watching for a modern audience (laughs) yeah it's um it's it's fun and, and in that sense it's worth watching but it wouldn't be the uh Grab somebody and pull them down onto the couch. You know, you got to watch this. Uh, I I don't think that would. Don't think it meets that criteria for me. Okay, interesting. Well, then, uh, next week we get a very rare thing in Doctor Who. It's a two parter (laughs) The Rescue. So we will see you then. I've double-locked the doors. You can't get in. Now move back, child, where I can see you. During all the years, I've been taking care of you. You and the town have been taking care of me. Grandfather, I belong with you. Not any longer, Susan. 
you're still my grandchild and always will be. But now, you're a woman too. I want you to belong somewhere, to have roots of your own. With David, you'll be able to find those roots and live normally like any woman should do. Believe me, my dear, your future lies with David and not with a silly old buffer like me. One day, I shall come back. Yes, I shall come back. Until then, there must be no regrets, no tears, no anxieties. Just go forward in all your beliefs and prove to me that I am not mistaken in mine. Goodbye, Susan. Goodbye, my dear.